Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we come to All Saints Sunday, one of the primary feasts of the church year in which we remember those people whose lives um, have so changed ours that we can do nothing more than to remember the power of their story. Some of them are well known throughout the Christian tradition for the impact that they had, and some of them are known maybe just to us. But either way, we remember them. Memory is powerful. I don't know, has anyone heard uh, the podcast Heavyweights? Um, okay, it's great. You should listen to it. The host reconnects people um, who need some sort of closure in their life. Uh, one person reconnected with a high school classmate who had bullied them and wanted to tell them about how that bullying had impacted them. Another guy uh, who described himself as uh, socially awkward and overweight wanted to connect with the beautiful, popular girl in high school who, he had, who had invited him to the prom. He wanted to know why she did that. Why would she be so mean? Why did she lose a bet? Uh, why was she making fun of him? And it turns out she actually liked him. Like of all the things that he thought about why the beautiful popular girl would pick him, the fact that she might actually like him was never on the things that he had considered. A recent episode called John was about John Green, who you all might know as the author of Fault in Our Stars, book and also a movie. 20 years ago, John was getting ready for seminary to be an Episcopal priest, the summer before he was going to seminary, he worked as a hospital chaplain. During an overnight, he was called into the ER where he met a three-year-old boy who had suffered major burns over most of his body. His dad had been burning leaves and the fire suddenly took over and consumed this boy as John was going into the room, a social worker gave him a stick of gum, and when John asked, what is this for, she said, it's to hide the smell. He ran into one of the doctors working in the ER who was throwing up in a trash can and told John this boy would die. John said when he got home from the hospital, he stayed in the shower for 90 minutes trying to wash off the smell from his body. To this day, he says, there are times in which that smell comes back to memory. And there's times in which he can still hear the screams of pain. For John, this whole event was way too unfair. Where was God in this? How could God allow a three-year-old boy to be harmed in such a way? John not only decided he did not want to go to seminary, John decided he wasn't sure that he was Christian and effectively became an agnostic. For the past 15 years or so, each and every night, John, though, continued to pray for this boy and his family. 
He didn't know really what had become of them because the next day when he came back to the hospital, the boy had been transferred to a specialty hospital and sort of lost contact. But yet, this event was so powerful for him that for 15 years, each and every night, he prayed. He said in reflecting and preparation, he said, I'm not even really sure that I've prayed that often for my own kids, and yet I pray for this kid. His name was Nate. He knew and remembered Nate's name, and over the years, he had thought about Googling Nate to see what had happened to him. Did he live or did he die? But I think he was so afraid of learning that he died that he could never bring himself to Google his name, and finally he does. And he finds out Nate is alive. And Nate is really doing pretty well. He's gone on to college, he's working on his MBA, and they connect on this podcast. John shared with Nate how this seminal event of their intersection in life that Nate had no knowledge of had shaped him and his story. He asked Nate if it was okay that he had prayed for him regularly. John had already shared with Nate his own agnosticism. And Nate said, I hope you would pray for me, and I would hope that this conversation, this praying, this need to to say something to God about this has kept the conversation open between you and God. You see, for Nate and for Nate's family, the events were horrible. There's no sugarcoating it. For many years, he had to go through surgery after surgery after surgery, There were moments of touch and go, and then affections came and affections left. But in the midst of that, Nate said that somebody invited them to church. Nate and his family had never been churchgoers. And Nate says, you know, in the midst of all of this, if I look back at one thing, at least one good thing came from it. So let's turn now to the gospel story. Mary and Martha are sisters. Their brother Lazarus is sick, and they call for Jesus to come. Jean Vanier suggests that Lazarus may have been disabled or unable to fully care for himself because it would be sort of odd for for a man to be living with his sisters. The Gospels are clear that there is this real and powerful relationship between Jesus and Lazarus and his family. The sisters call for Jesus and they say, you need to come quickly for Lazarus is sick. And the Gospels tells us that Jesus stays where he is. He doesn't return quickly to his friend. When Jesus finally shows up three days later, the sisters are furious Y'all ever been angry like that? One of them says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would be alive. It's in the midst of this conversation that Jesus proclaims, I am the way, the life, and the truth. I am resurrection and I am life. And despite this bold conviction from Jesus about who he is and the power behind um, that And all that means, Jesus still, when he comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, 
weeps. Fleming Rutledge reflects on the power of death in the New Testament. She says that all mentions of Hades in the New Testament link it or him with death. Explicitly or implicitly, death and Hades are connected. She says that when Jesus wrestles with Satan, therefore he is wrestling with death itself. And like Hades, death is conceived as a power capable of imprisoning human souls without any hope of release. Death in the New Testament, she says, does not refer solely to the extinction of, 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 eternal, of na- the end of natural life. So death does not just indicate an end of natural life, which was taken for granted, but rather that death had become a, host- a hostile power. Therefore, to die is not simply pass, to pass to Sheol, and it is certainly not to inherit immortality. But death is experienced as condemnation and a defeat at the hands of God's enemies. This idea that had developed in between the Old Testament and the New Testament became so powerful for them that death was seen as an enemy and one that needed to be defeated. And she says this is why we can understand Jesus' powerful response to arriving at the tomb. He'd grown up in a culture in which death was seen as an enemy that had beat you. So it didn't matter that he knew that he was resurrection and life. In that moment, he still experienced profound grief at the loss of his friend. In the book, The Last Temptation of Christ, the author describes Jesus' approach to the tomb this way. All the blood went to Jesus' head. His eyes rolled and disappeared. Only the whites remained. He brought forth such a bellow that you would have thought that there was a bull inside him. He uttered a wild cry, a strange cry, something from another world. Have y'all ever cried like that? Sometimes... Sometimes our deepest cries are, in fact, our greatest statement of faith. Much like John, who saw in this boy, Nate, a great unfairness of the world, despite his own sort of agnosticism, cried out to God each and every night for things to be made right. Sometimes we cry out in ways that demand and ask for mercy from God. Cries that demand for us to understand, God, how did this happen? Show us, reveal it to us. A few weeks ago, I was discussing the stages of grief and how sometimes it's presented as levels that we accomplish so that we don't have to grieve anymore. But the reality is, is I don't know that we ever stop grieving. Sure, maybe it becomes less acute over time. My great aunt, who was more like a grandmother to me, died almost 30 years ago. She smoked menthol more cigarettes, and she wore white diamonds perfume, and if I could mix those two into a candle, I would buy it. We pray for the dead. We pray for those who have gone, not because we fear where they are, 
For there is no angry God that is hiding behind Jesus waiting to get us. We pray for the dead because we love them. We appreciate the witness that they gave to us. We appreciate that they were created in the image and likeness of God, and so we offer them to God. We, like John, have experiences and people that have so intersected our lives that we cannot shake it no matter what. That even when we are angry about how things have happened, that even when we are like Jesus and we throw ourselves on a grave and cry out, it keeps the conversation going. We pray because sometimes it's the only thing that we can do. Think if we were honest, our deepest want is to be omniscient like God so that we could understand why the things happen that happen. And what I know is, is that there are things that will forever be unknowable to me. But what I do know, what I do know is, is that grief is okay. What I also know is, is that Jesus is the Lord of life. And because of my faith in Jesus and the witnesses of the saints who believe so strongly in the resurrection that they were willing to die on their own accord, that I can trust that God can bear the things that I find unbearable. That when I cry out, God hears those and does not leave me comfortless. We pray because we love. Amen.